0: And welcome to the Tech UK podcast. My name is Emily Sondorf, and I'm the Tech UK Program Manager for AI and Digital Ethics. Although the potential for AI to drive economic growth and improve many day to day services is well known, mistrust remains high. And today, I'm joined by some brilliant guests to explore why. And perhaps more importantly, what practical steps the tech industry can take to overcome this and earn greater public trust. My first guests are Lofred Matsu and Joab Schlesinger. Lofred is the Director of Strategy and Business Development at Trueera, and was until recently Project Lead for Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning at the World Economic Forum. And Yoav is Director of Ethical AI Practice at Salesforce. Based on their extensive experience, they share some of the trends they're seeing within Responsible AI and offer their own views on what will prove most effective in increasing trustworthiness. Later on, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Anagnostopoulos and Craig Rhodes, Chris is senior principal data scientist and associate partner at Quantum Black, McKinsey Company, and Craig is Nvidia's industry lead on AI for healthcare and life sciences in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. They're both experts in AI, specifically within healthcare and life sciences, and the conversation therefore made for a really fascinating exploration of the specific opportunities and challenges in those sectors. But first up, let's welcome and Lofred. Hello, Joav and Lofred. Thanks for joining the Tech UK podcast. Today, we're obviously talking about how companies and industry can increase trust in AI. But before we go on to that, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of the fundament- fundamentals when it comes to AI and trust. And perhaps if I start with you, Joav, in your kind of career working with AI to date, how has your thinking developed when it comes to the question of why people often tend towards perhaps more mistrust than trust in AI, if you agree that that is the case?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I think that there is a degree of mistrust in AI, which is natural given its opacity, right? We are subject to decision-making that is far beyond our understanding in most cases or even our awareness and at the same time i'm not certain that the mistrust of ai is necessarily different from any mistrust of a new technology that's been introduced historically historians of technology and society who know far more about these things than i do um, will talk about the introduction of the bicycle or the introduction of automobiles, the introduction of new medical technologies. And the societal response to these things is oftentimes of skepticism, of fear, of anxiety. And I'm not certain that AI is any different. Uh, And at the same time, it's certainly the case that we need to be thinking about how to increase trust in AI, given the scale at which it operates, and its ubiquity. So all of the decisions that are being made on our behalf or that are determinative of things that we will or won't have access to, the ways that we will interact with each other and with society mean that we have to be giving special attention to AI now with this technology. Uh, so I do agree with your the fundamental premise of your question. and. Uh, it's certainly the case that we see it with our customers at Salesforce uh, in their thinking about how to increase trust with their own consumers and their own customers.
0: And putting that to you, Lofred, I suppose to me that sounds like quite a positive, uh, you know, an optimistic view in a sense, because at this point we all, I would suggest, trust the bicycle. Um, (laughs) And so, Lofred, do do you agree? Like maybe there's not that big of a difference when it comes to kind of other new things that have been introduced.
2: That's a, that's actually a good. Uh, that's a good question. First, thanks for for having me, and I will really echo uh, your point on this. I think there's a, an element of novelty when it comes to AI, but I don't think that we're at the stage where there's a massive distrust in AI that is being deployed. What I'm what, are, you know, what I'm making sure here is we're discussing about the state of the industry and its adoption in enterprises across industries, and I'm I'm, I'm focusing on this. And then there's a second level of discussion is more like in the general culture and, and pop culture about, you know, how AI is being perceived and which may differ significantly on how it is being actually deployed in various industries. So just want to make this clear. I think the primary issue is more credibility tests that AI hasn't somehow passed. What I mean by credibility, I'm really focusing on the robustness of these models being deployed. And many of these instances on things, have you know, went wrong and have, you know, adversely impacted people comes down to reliability of the technology itself and the infancy in terms of industrial deployment. And I think it's really important to, to start with a good mapping of, you know, uh, how AI is being deployed, how, what are the risks of the challenges that actors deploying the tech are facing and starting from there, rather than the broader discussion about, you know, technology adoption and how it shapes society. Valuable discussion, don't get me wrong. But I think that sometimes these two, two levels of discourse kind of like colleagues and, you know, make things harder to understand.
0: Yeah, and perhaps, I guess, maybe getting into some of the specifics of deployment and what we can do in those contexts, you know, do you think that could also have an impact on then the wider, like, societal discussion of AI?
2: Oh, definitely. Uh, Definitely. One of my favorite philosophers, uh, his name was Hubert Dreyfus, uh, say that back 1972, like over 50 now, 50 years ago, before we can profitably discuss what AI should be doing and you know, the implications, we must come to terms with what AI can do and focusing on the capabilities and limitations. Otherwise, you know, we can disagree, but we may be just you know chasing a ghost here. So let's start by the the, the capabilities and what AI actually doing. Back then he was talking about symbolic AI and now obviously going to machine learning and deep learning. But I think that that statement is pretty much valid. Let's start with the capabilities and limitations and work from there in addressing the challenges that we face depending on the use case at stake.
0: And so I guess getting quite practical, when you think of the specific steps that companies can take uh, to increase trust in AI services, in products, um, what to you seem like some of the more successful and perhaps one of what are some of the ones you've seen pursued or that you are pursuing? Maybe you, are, you can tell us a little bit about how, how Salesforce is looking at this.
1: Absolutely. So at Salesforce, we are working very hard to lean in on our AI principles of accountability, transparency, empowerment, responsibility, you know, the things that we believe AI should do for society. And we're not alone in having crystallized a set of principles like this. I think, you know, there are dozens, if not hundreds of these from private sector actors, public sector actors, etc. And at the same time, we've been very clear about how to operationalize each of these principles. So when we think about transparency, for example, our efforts include a variety of things, but notably, I'd call out our efforts in producing model cards for all of our global models. Right, This was an initiative that was piloted and pioneered by research scientists at Google, but they are fundamentally what we like to call nutrition labels for AI models. They explain how a model works, what its model factors are, caveats, limitations, and ethical considerations for the use of that use and deployment of that model. We've developed those or are developing those for all of the models that we deploy across our customers, what we call global models. And that's a very clear effort at transparency that we are committed to and helps not only our customers, but also civil society actors, journalists, regulators, et cetera, understand the scope of our AI technologies. In accountability, we operationalize through an ethical use advisory council. So we're seeking input not only from external experts in this case, but also from internal employees, frontline employees, as well as executives who review use cases, who review ethical questions and provide input and recommendations to leadership. And so we're holding ourselves accountable to the involvement of stakeholders in a variety of realms. Uh, When it comes to, you know, um, equality, we're committed to testing for bias in all of our models and ensuring that not only have we measured it, but that we've also mitigated it to the extent that's possible. Obviously, it's impossible to be bias-free, but our attempts at mitigating the bias that we can identify and remediate. So each of these is an operationalizable principle, right? And steps that we believe build trust fundamentally, not only in ourselves as a company, but in the AI as well. And when we are trusted as a provider of the AI as an AI platform, and when we can develop that trust with customers and society, the entire system is benefited. And uh, we think that that's an important aspect of our provision of AI services.
0: I think it's really interesting this, you know, the idea of trying to look at each of the principles that we kind of hear so much about and find, you know, creating the direct link with operationalizing it, um, because I guess that's that's one of the the big challenges. And I I feel like we could talk much more about all of those. Um, But I was wondering. In, in transparency, I guess the challenge that's brought up a lot is around the balance between being transparent and also uh, p- kind of protecting commercial sensitivities. Is that something that's been a challenge for you?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I can't pretend that there's not a tension there between what is proprietary and what is shareable. So we are in a dance Uh, with product teams, with legal, right, to to share what we can and to not share so much IP as to make ourselves irrelevant. Uh, I I can't pretend that uh, we don't have that conversation. At the same time, it's my job sitting in the ethical AI practice to advocate for as much transparency as possible. I get pushback but my role is to push for that transparency. And so there are business interests that con- that converge with the AI principles and being in the enterprise means that there is a trade-off that's constantly negotiated between business needs and ethical needs. Uh, and sitting in my role, Fundamentally, the job is how to balance and weigh those trade-offs and make recommendations for the path forward that minimize harm and maximize societal good.
0: Um, and just staying with you for a second, because uh, I know Salesforce also has a focus on kind of humane use and, and the, not just the creation of the of a kind of software, but also what it's being used for. And I was wondering if you have any reflections on what role that plays in, in kind of increasing the trust of AI, if it, it requires any kind of safeguards in terms of where the technologies are being deployed?
1: Absolutely. So we have two aspects of our work in the Office of Ethical and Humane Use. The first is the development of our technology, what we call ethics by design, leveraging practices from privacy by design and other fields, security, et cetera, um, and how we responsibly develop our products. And then we also have the deployment of our products and thinking about how we provide guardrails and guidance to our customers for how they use our products. So we have, for example, governing policy in our acceptable use policy that prohibits the use of our technology to do facial recognition. Uh, we have guidance in our acceptable use policy that prohibits uh, using our AI to predict sensitive characteristics like race, uh, like marital status, like religion, etc. So we create for our customers and partners, this kind of guidance, both from a policy standpoint, but then also from an ethical standpoint in putting guardrails into the product that hopefully ensure they're making informed, empowered decisions about the ways they use our product and are doing so in a responsible way.
0: Great, thanks. Um, And Lofred, I guess, can you share a little bit on what you think works well in in the, Practical ways that trust can be increased.
2: Definitely, again, I'm going to uh, echo uh, many points that you have made. I think, like in my journey, because I've been in the responsible AI space for six years now, from the policy sites to the tech, I will say the startup sites, I can maybe like you know guide through uh, that transition. And some of the things I've seen that work well. The first one that thing, first thing that you have uh, have pointed out is the need for for some definitions and principles. Um, I have a basic definition of what I call like a trustworthy system. It's basically a system whose behavior is consistent with a set of requirements. And no I've like, I've, I've shot a few of them and on their own explainability, privacy, and so forth. These use cases, there's a convergence, sorry, this requirement, sorry, there's a convergence uh, across, you know, industries and use cases. Obviously, there are some, you know, specific, uh, I would say like differences depending on the use case at play, but overall, you need to have a sense of, What are these requirements? What do you expect your AI to do? And this has to be formalized and have a good sense of this, right? As you formalize these requirements, then the question is how you implement, you know, uh, what processes you deploy to ensure that your system is actually in compliance. Compliance is a more legal term, but at least consistent with these uh, requirements. And again, I mentioned them, privacy, explainability, data quality, and so forth. Again, there's a convergence on that. I've been doing this on various use cases, thinking about mostly like in high tech domains, facial recognition is, is, is one of them. If you use it, at, I did it I've done at airports for flow management. We also worked with law enforcement agencies, obviously a much more sensitive uh, uh, use case, but we did pretty much the same exercise, what are requirements, and then it turned into like kind of assessment questionnaire I went all the way to build an audit framework, because in some use cases, you will need actually someone to test uh, your system either internally or externally, and you went all the way to certification for the flow management use case. Um, so these are good practices. You have the requirements, you bring in third party actors. If you're really nice tech domains and it's highly regulated, it's always good to have someone coming and checking the, comp- the consistency of, you, of your system against uh, these requirements. As I'm transitioning to uh, a startup, um, there are two key elements that help you really making this, uh, making this well. The first one is the diagnostic. As I said, you have some expectations regarding your AI. We're providing explainability and AI quality, um, uh, I will say, um, solution to help you establish a solid diagnostic on the uh, performance of your model very through like a holistic approach. What I mean here is not only the core engineering, because as I said AI has primarily a credibility issue. So you need to start with the robustness, the accuracy and so forth. So we're looking at all of that. Explainability is the fundamental brick. You need to understand what are the features that drive the behavior of your model to even address the over questions, right? So on the bias aspects and so forth, all of that comes down to what the model is actually doing. So if you have really powerful explainability uh, capabilities, you get a sense of, you get insight into the behavior of a model and ultimately you're able to adjust. Obviously AI, you know, machine learning specifically here, uh, evolved with data and use. So regardless of res- the requirements that you established at first, as your models on predictions, behavior is likely to-, to change. You're going to face some data drifts and, and over issues. So it's important to have monitoring uh, capabilities that you know basically uh, give you insights into the behavior of your models as they're well in prediction. And again, give you a chance to you know, come in and intervene if something goes wrong. So, just to summarize here is key requirements and what do you expect from your model exactly, and then you monitor you have a diagnostic before before going into prediction, getting a sense of you know you did, you've done things right, and as a model is in prediction, you need some solid monitoring capabilities.
0: And I suppose relating to some some of the aspects you were just talking about, how big of a role do you think it's going to start playing? because obviously some companies are already doing this, but having external uh auditors or whatever you want to call them come in and help check that kind of check the capabilities uh and the models uh yeah do you see so, a growth there
2: yeah it's going to play a, a key role in high-stake domains uh and it, it's really intuitive so if you look if you want to get a sense of you know where auditors are going to play a role you just need to look at the policy kind of discussion in the eu have the eua act that explicitly calls for high you know high risk use cases for the need for some audit, uh, audit processes, some of them would be internal, some of them would be external. But anytime AI system may affect someone's life chances, that's quite intuitive. If, some, if AI is going to make, is part of a process, decision making process, highly consequential on my life, access to you know, healthcare, access to employment, access to education, and so forth, you want to make sure that it does so not only in a lawful way, but also a fair, uh, a fair way. So there will be a lot of scrutiny in this place here for, for audits. The other, use, the other uh, element I want to mention here is the AI in HR uh, use case specifically. Again, if you're looking at what happened in New York City, you had a bill that passed a few weeks ago that specifically calls for third-party audits of uh, um, AI systems used for uh, recruitment but it's likely to be the case in many high uh, domains. Now, there's a challenge, and I want to maybe just finish on this on this point. Who's going to provide the engine to enable these audits? Because if you're looking at traditional auditors, in financial audits, but even beyond, even technical audits, you, you they don't have the capabilities, I mean, let's put it this way. At the moment, the, I think the um, auditors with AI expertise is, you know, is really rare. Let alone adding software that enable these AI auditors to come in and to actually check, you know, what happened. Let alone doing this at a company like Salesforce that operate at scale globally. I mean, even as, even I would say that, you know, Salesforce is not like operating, you know, really critical, dangerous spaces. But think about this. Large companies operating globally. Who's going to do that? What capabilities? What? So it's a big question mark, even on the auditors as well.
0: And um Perhaps just to to finish for both of you, I know, Lofred, you said you don't like predictions, Um, but uh, more than a prediction, perhaps just a general sense of whether you are optimistic that the current direction of travel, you know, this kind of growth and interest from um, consumers uh, and customers of AI in trustworthy, in kind of, yeah, responsible AI, whether that might increase trust over time. We can start with you, Joab.
1: I try to be an optimist about this. Um, I think I'm generally positive that we're trending in a, in a positive direction around this societally and individually with regard to corporate enterprises, non-governmental organizations, public policy, et cetera, and that we're moving in that direction. And like I was saying, I still think we have a long way to go. We're strangely still fundamentally in the early days of the move toward ethical and responsible AI. And this is probably a generational shift, not one that happens on the order of months or years, but on a decade. Uh, And so we've got work to do, but I think that the trends are positive. Even the latest uh, AI index from Stanford shows a move in both technical ethical AI as well as ethical AI enterprises in general. And I think that that's a positive signal that we're
2: moving in the right direction.
0: Lofred, do you do you agree? Are you optimistic or pessimistic?
2: Oh, I'm quite optimistic and uh, I agree with you, and I will go even further. I think that we are the beginning of a shift toward AI adoption period. And I think, like again, the trustworthy... Elements is, is really really critical here, but I think it's a second stage. The first one is does AI actually pass this credibility test? AI claims a lot of claims about what AI can and cannot do, and actually doing in various industries and use cases. And when you really get close to the use case and what people are doing, many instances it's either not AI or it's not delivering on the on the uh, on the on the promises and so forth. So we need to pass that credibility test as AI scale. And many companies struggle to scale AI. What I always tell them, and I told them before and joining that startup, and it's pretty much even more important now is that the only AI you should be deploying is responsible AI as I defined it before, and saying you wouldn't it would be really reckless to deploy something that doesn't behave as you expect. Right, so it requires you to really reflect on what you expect, and we can again have that conversation. But once we kind of agree on that, you know, you need to have the capabilities to actually, you know, make sure that that the model does so. So I'm pretty optimistic about uh, the about uh, the direction that we're taking because, again, being in that space for six years, even just five years ago, everything we discussed now was really in the realm of policy experts and technology experts and conferences and fact conferences and so forth. Any business leaders now, and even policymakers, I would argue, way beyond AI, have an interest not only in AI, but understanding that AI brings a lot of you know, um, benefits and opportunities, but also create various governance challenges and risks that need to be addressed at the design, deployment, and then while, while the model and production. That's common knowledge. So now, what we need now is actually delivering on that demand for trustworthy AI by you know, scaling access to these tools, and these tools exist.
0: Good call to action to finish on, I think. Yeah. Um, sadly, we've already come, come to the end, but uh, Wanya, thank you so much for, for taking part and um, hopefully speak to you again sometime soon. Thank you. thank you. Thank you to Jov and Lofred for sharing their insights. Next up is Craig Rhodes, NVIDIA's Europe, Middle East, and Africa industry lead on AI for healthcare and life sciences. And Dr. Chris Anagnostopoulos, Senior Principal Data Scientist and Associate Partner at McKinsey Quantum Black. Hello, Craig and Chris, and welcome to the Tech UK podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're going to be talking about what practical steps uh, tech companies can take to increase trust in AI. Um, But before we get into some of the detail, I wanted to start by asking why you think AI skepticism is so prevalent in the first place? And perhaps kicking up with you, Craig, um, how has your thinking evolved on this question during your career?
3: Yeah, so uh, just uh, I'm Craig Rhodes, so I lead the health and life sciences team for NVIDIA for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, so I think it's a it's a it's starting to become a really interesting question around the ethics around AI, especially in the healthcare and life sciences industry. Um, one of the things that Nvidia is really trying to understand is the direction of travel that this is going into, and what the implications of each of our vertical industries is. As you know, Nvidia is also in areas like autonomous driving, and um, that this has a has a real key role to play as well. I think for us, we're still learning. A lot of the healthcare programs and artificial intelligence are still in its infancy, um, and we're tr- really trying to understand how do we get across that barrier. Of really showing that AI is really beneficial at the point of care and um, to support improvements in, in that care program, as well as being really uh, a great opportunity to increase the ability to pr- produce tools that are, are really worthwhile as well. So there's these combinations of trust and also applicability um, that are a real must as well. So it's a it's a really interesting space, but a really, uh, you know, it's very, very early in its infancy
0: and perhaps coming to you as well Chris kind of why do you think there are any characteristics of ai specifically which encourages mistrust in any way
4: I think uh, i think there's a long history to this to this subject actually and ai is posing some new challenges but also kind of combining older challenges all in one big complex package so if we think about the history of ethics in technology we can think of data ethics, for example, which has a long tradition. I mean, I, I come from a statistical background. I was trained as a statistician and taught statistics as an associate professor at Imperial College for a few years. And there, it, it was always very important to be aware of the data ethics frameworks that might be regional depending on, on, on the situation and so on uh, around data privacy, data misuse, communicating clearly insights extracted from data. All of these considerations remain topical with AI, but what's changing is first of all, the degree of decision-making that societies now rely on AI for, right? So the footprint of the technology is bigger and therefore that makes it even more important to have regulations that are easy to follow and best practices that are widely adopted. So that's a question of scale. And then automation is, in my opinion, one of the main differences in AI-based decision systems versus older versions. We still have a human in the loop in most of our data-driven decision-making pipelines, but increasingly that ability of the human to control the decision-making or quality assure it, if you like, is limited because of the whole objective of AI being to automate decisions so that they can be made faster and therefore by design almost trying to remove or reduce the involvement of human supervision. So I think overall... We're meeting a few of the same challenges as we've met before with technology and data in AI, but at a different scale, both in terms of magnitude and in terms of speed of interaction with the systems that are in place.
3: I think Chris makes a good point just about this scale. I think what we're seeing in healthcare and there's some programs like the AI Centre in London is that they've gone from small research projects to now, you know, regionally sized AI programs. The one in King's College London with the AI centre is 10 large NHS trusts which cover 26 million um, patients. So again, to Chris's point, the the decision-making process in that suddenly has applicability of a much, much bigger scale than we'd ever kind of perceived or considered before. Um, now, the challenges and issues are still there. What does the patient think? What do the consultants think, the radiologists? Um, but the scale of the decision making process and the impact that it's going to have is far, far bigger. So it's, it's an interesting how you bring in scale into these kind of questions, um, whereas previously you might have a, a fairly small patient group and a, a research top a professor, PhDs and so on around that. Now we're looking at regional and if not national type programs. And how do you understand how AI is going to have an applicability to at that level?
0: And I guess that both those points around the scale and the levels of automation is a good, you know, a, a good reason to talk about well, increasing trustworthiness and, and how and how that's possible. So perhaps um if you could share some of the specific steps that you've Taken, your companies have been taking to increase, like the trust uh, of users, but also just making the AI as trustworthy as possible. Um, and and yeah, how how are you going about putting putting this into practice?
4: Maybe it's best to set the scene first by describing very briefly my current role. So uh, as a senior principal data scientist at McKinsey Quantum Black, I. Lead our internal initiatives in understanding ethical ai uh, and how an evolving set of best practices needs to be managed and propagated within our organization right and we have hundreds of data scientists that are uh, that are um, joining us on different projects across all domains at the same time, my own work is mostly focused in the life sciences and serving life sciences clients so biopharma as well as healthcare and therefore I get to see also how industry is responding to these challenges. So with with these two frames in mind, I would say that the types of approaches that we see adopted fall roughly in sort of four categories, um, perhaps four plus one is a good way to put it. The first category would be just an increasing reliance and awareness of explainability tools. And there are many, I don't want to go into a technical deep dive, but it is a very healthy Uh, literature and a very healthy space in terms of open source tools as well. So tracking that, understanding and using them wisely and not necessarily treating them as an off-the-shelf component that gives you a nice visualization, but actually understanding the limitations of the explainability tools themselves is is something that we spend a a lot of time on. Then a second category is relying wherever possible, or at least making sure that Um, that they're considered methods that are inherently interpretable. So uh, techniques that, for example, have some elements of additivity or some elements of Bayesian networks included together with more sort of, you know, non-linear modern ML is is something which is particularly of interest to a biostatistical audience and to a clinical or epidemiological audience. So there, that space um, is actually a very interesting one to keep track of because I do believe that in many ways the life sciences uh and in particular the the clinical sort of drug development process uh will be a bit of a um, a pioneer in how they manage to safely uh digest if you like ai within the process of validation that they've already uh outlined over decades right of understanding how how to test new technologies so that's a space to look into and Again, wherever possible, don't overcomplicate the model uh, if you don't have to in terms of predicted performance. The third category is more, less about explaining the model's output and more about just being very careful to list all the necessary information somebody needs to have in order to understand how the model was built. So this sometimes falls under the name model cards. There's other ways to describe it, but it's just the basic idea of transparently saying this model was built on this particular data set using these techniques, and these are the shortcomings that we identified, and these are the predicted performance or other types of performance uh, metrics that were measured on this data set, right? So just uh, collecting all that information and attaching it to to a specific version of the model, which then creates the fourth category of steps, which is about governance. So how do you ensure that in a large organization, There's clear ownership for models. There's a single owner for each model. There's a clear provenance to the data. Uh, There's good communication in terms of whenever a user of that model identifies a problem, they know who to raise it to. And that idea of model governance, we see various different types of of structuring it around existing governance structures in organizations. Sometimes it will fall under the chief data officer. Uh, Other times it might fall in horizontal functions Uh, or business unit verticals. So that's an interesting space that we're also caring about. So these these are the four categories, sort of XAI techniques, inherently explainable methods where possible, uh, being transparent about models and data and how they were created. And finally, uh, uh, governance of those those things. And then as a plus one category, I would say that building protocols and best practices and codifying all of that information in a way that, that is easy to, to upskill new 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 data scientists and users and so on. So finding uh, the right way to have a continued edu- education on this topic, because frankly, also being an academic, I also teach ethical AI at Imperial College. And um, it's interesting to see how most of our postgraduate education didn't until recently have any focus on these issues, right? So we we would teach data science without necessarily giving the ethical aspect or even the basic primer of the regulatory implications. This is changing and we need to keep track of it and make sure that we support that education and upskilling piece too.
0: And Craig, I guess particularly also with your expertise in healthcare and life sciences, do those sound like the kind of categories that you're pursuing as well?
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to hear how much of that crosses over into what we're doing. So I think with um, with NVIDIA, as we've seen over the, probably since I've been there five years, the advancement of NVIDIA into the world of AI, um, I think what we've tried to do is to really kind of embed ourselves into some of the large programs, especially in healthcare life sciences, so that we can look from the inside out of what the challenges, is, what the opportunities are, um, and how we can try and uh, overcome those. So as an example, with organizations like GSK, we work very, very closely With the big pharmaceutical organizations to really understand what's driving them to kind of really look at ai um, from where they were previously to be very kind of traditional using standard operating procedures um, to now really to kind of you know start a clean piece of paper really look at how ai can really transform the world of drug discovery to where we've kind of embedded ourselves into clinical programs like path lake for pathology in the uk I cared up in Scotland in the AI centre, really taking imaging data and really trying to understand how that we can identify artifacts and aspects around that imaging that can improve the workflow. But whilst we're looking at both of those, ethically how do we understand what our role is to play in those as well and it's it's a it's a challenging world for an organization like nvidia you know we're not a data collector or aggregator and um, we're not trying to push people into our our environment but we want to understand how we can best optimize the algorithms that chris is alluding to um on nvidia gpu technology as well so we want to kind of be on the inside looking out but also from a corporate company perspective, we've got a group called the AI Nations. So they look at national programs of artificial intelligence, looking at what they're doing, how are they doing it, what does it mean, as well as we've got a regulatory um, organization that are looking at all of the kind of EU demands that are coming out um, from that aspect as, as well. Uh, I think, again, what Chris points out is really interesting. Where we are with the AI program, in London is now starting to create algorithms that are starting to go into the point of care. And this idea of kind of the provenance of an algorithm, where did it come from? How was it created? And how can we effectively medically indemnify this algorithm to be used by the point of care by a whole bunch of clinicians that aren't the clinicians who created it or annotated it, I think is a really, really interesting question. And one that these big national or regional AI centres, I think in some cases are sluts, kind of slowly realising this is a big programme of work. It's not just about building, you know, tools and techniques to be able to analyse a genome or an image, but it's also how do we get it into clinical care so that there's an acceptance to be able to use these algorithms without the need for things like FDA to spend two or three years reviewing it so that it can be used under some governance process. Now, of course, people like FDA and ISO still need to be involved in the process. But if it's going to take three years to review an algorithm and get it into the point of care, and then every time you add another data data set, you've got to do the same, AI is really going to fail. So we've we've got to work that way out.
4: I just wanted to briefly comment on that because it, that, that latter point is particularly interesting. So two two quick reactions. First, the regulatory attitude is, is shifting and evolving and there are now guidelines around, for example, updates to models and how they should be treated. So it's interesting to see that space evolve. Um, but at the same time, um, the, the point about clinical care is particularly important because there's some recent work by Floridi and others to think about the bioethical principles and how do we need to extend them to cover for AI interventions. And interestingly, a recent paper suggested that the only thing we need to add to our classical bioethical principles of patient autonomy and 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 uh, sort of beneficence and non-maleficence and so on are uh, is explainability. And the reason is that you're now introducing this intervention that the patient certainly doesn't understand but maybe the clinician doesn't understand it either. And therefore, who is really responsible when a decision is being made if there's nobody at the time present in the room that completely understands uh, the intervention and can explain it to to the patient so that we can preserve autonomy and the right to to decide, right? So I think what what we'll find is that there's going to be layers of technology that need to sit on top of the core decision-making technology and that they need to be somehow... Uh, made consistent across different use cases so that they can start to have a user experience and a track record to have some kind of repeatability of experience, right? In terms of what it means to use AI uh, in the doctor's office. So that, that is a very fascinating space for sure and at the very cutting edge of this discussion.
3: Yeah, and I I, th- I think the challenge there as well is, you know, we, we've come to a position where we realize that we all need AI, but how do we reflect our AI on that user interface so that it feels like, just another part of the decision-making process rather than it's fact and this is the actual decision. So I think that whole, uh, that whole question about how do we push AI to a clinical de- decision-making process is also very, very interesting. Again, something that's not really being answered because we're not there yet. We're not we're, you know in angst using these algorithms in daily care. Now, there are some instances of that. But I think, you know, until we realize that AI is just another part of the multidisciplinary team um, and should be considered like that, then I, I think, you know, the, we're still a long way to go in that process.
0: Um, I wanted to also return. I was curious about what your kind of plus one category, Chris, uh, before when you were kind of going through the, your approach to trustworthiness. And it was kind of it was partly about Making sure that uh, your own data scientists and engineers are aware of what the processes are and and how to go through this and and uh, and you kind of commented on it's not really been part of the education system too much until now and uh, and I'm I wanted to to kind of hear both of your views on uh, do you think like your your colleagues your your teams are they really interested in this area is it an area where like the it, it's it's growing uh, kind of curiosity within the workforce or is it something that you kind of have to um, I guess cultivate quite a lot. I can start with you, Chris.
4: I think it's actually taking over the entire field in a, in a good way. Um, it's becoming a framework through which to view data science itself, right? Like so, um, this is still ongoing, of course. And again, like you know, uh, university education is often uh, very technical, uh, and and therefore it doesn't necessarily have a natural place for a discussion like the one we're having now. But in terms of the culture around data science conferences, AI conferences, the literature, it's definitely becoming uh, the primary lens through which we view our work. I I think it's a question of the data science profession maturing, right? Like it it started off as, um, you know, as a curiosity. Some Some of the data sets we played around with like 20 years ago were, Kind of just fun toy data sets to play with, um, and, and now it's becoming part and parcel of of how society is run. Um, and I think we're seeing a, a, an incredible receptiveness um, from our uh, more junior colleagues, in particular, in thinking about this problem in, in this way. Uh, I don't know if if Craig uh, you you agree with that assessment. That's my uh, my view.
3: Yeah, and no, I think it's we're getting closer and closer to the point where it really matters. And I think because we're getting closer, we have to understand the implication of what it's going to do. And I think from a technical perspective, we know we can do it now. There's there's absolutely no doubt about it that we can look at a pathology image or tens of thousands of them and probably identify many artifacts that could never have been seen before or look at combinations of genetic data and pathology data and start to make indications of what might be relevant to one to the other? We know we know these things. These are facts. Fact. Five years ago, we were kind of ah, oh, we think we can do this. I think the the challenge now is the implications of getting over the next hurdle are huge. There and they are they are worldwide implications. And as well as that, do we just lump everything into AI once we've got over the hurdle of regulation? Do we just throw anything we want to into AI into the AI bucket just so it gets approved? So I think there's also going to have to be a separation to what actually do we mean is AI so that we can then flow it down the right part of the process. So I think the implications are, are now being clearly understood, and especially from the clinical organizations, to really understand what does this mean to their workforce? What's this going to mean to their decision making, to the point about the patients? Do we need to explain these to the patients, to the consultants? Well, how do I consume all of this data? So those kind of questions are now starting to reinforce we need to really put some governance behind this and really understand the ethical boundaries and you know i my old job we had a fantastic anthropologist and this was her old world was living in the back of ambulances watching what data they interacted and how they interacted data and then watching them go into an a e department and write on carbon paper and leave a sheet of carbon paper for the A&E kind of, t- and, you know, they had all of this electronic information, the ambulance, and yet the handover process was still, you know, on paper. So, I, you know, these are all things that, you know, the world that healthcare is, you know, it's still pa- you know, places where people write things on paper. It's still worlds where systems don't talk to each other. And now we're interested, you know, introducing this new dilemma, which is going to be artificial intelligence. So, how do they bring this in? So I think certainly organizations like Chris are going to have an absolute field day um over the next five to ten years in this space. But how do we how do we automate it? How do we make it faster? How do we convince people, get over this process really, really quickly. And I think Chris made the point as well. When something happens, when something goes wrong, that's when the system will be known to break. And that's where we must have the evidence, be able to audit exactly what happened and why. Because we have seen massive failings in organisations trying to do AI. uh, And in some cases, doing overstepping the mark and doing things that they shouldn't be doing um, and inferring things and we've seen other organizations build monolithic systems that have just not done what they're supposed to do. So some of the AI ethical considerations
4: that we've listed can actually be monitored at a constant pace using technology and we, we do see a movement towards sort of compliance by design, where you have a machine learning ops organization, like monitoring uh, different ethical aspects of of the work, including privacy, fairness, bias, and others. Um, And I think that there's going to be an interesting tension as well, to Craig's point, between trying to automate compliance itself, right, like as an additional layer, versus maintaining that humility because fundamentally that's what we're talking about at the level of the engineer and the scientist to recognize the limitations of the approach and we we need to make sure that we create space for the really difficult questions to be asked and answered by the scientists and the engineers but at the same time relieve them of the duty of having to do a lot of manual checks and best practices checks that can be automated and that's what i find particularly interesting in this space of of ethical AI, the fact that because it's software, there is a meta layer, you know, of monitoring and compliance that you can build to monitor the, the AI. So technology monitoring technology, but that cannot get you to to the full answer. It can, however, create space uh, to answer the most difficult questions and not uh, spend all of your time on the easier ones.
3: Yeah, and just and just to that point, I think you know what we've seen with people that have been developing AI are. Coming up with new innovative ways of working with AI. I think one of the example of that is federated learning. So, this is the concept of not moving clinical data or any data that's secure out of the organization's boundaries, but creating the algorithm, the model within those organizations' boundaries, and then moving the model. So, you're effectively you know, sucking the intelligence out of the organization, creating intelligence within an algorithm and then consolidating those algorithms. So in the example of King's College London, we may have 10 hospitals that are all creating their own individual stroke algorithm. But ultimately, they're not going to share the clinical data in a big pool of data. What they will do is consolidate those algorithms. So then you get the knowledge of all of those 10 organizations without moving the data um, in a single algorithm that then you can share that algorithm back to those organizations. So it's a very, very powerful method from a secure security perspective. Now, this is, you know, some people have created swarm learning and other, but it's kind of come up because AI and the challenges within AI. And I think the governance thing, again, Chris made in the point, I'm sure there's going to be innovation in this field because it's so huge. The, the barrier to get this, you know, really you know, we've got 250 plus hospitals in, in the UK, you know, to get this over the hurdle to, uh, you know, half of those organizations, we've got to start solving some of these ethical problems really quick.
0: Uh, thank you so much, both of you for joining. This has been a fascinating conversation um, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and that we'll see you again on the Tech UK podcast soon.
4: Thank you very much. Thank you for having us.
0: That concludes this round of the TechUK podcast. Keep an eye out on techuk.org or our Twitter account at TechUK for further content and information about our work on AI. And hopefully, see you again soon.